Welcome to another edition of Starcatcher the Podcast. True stories from Hollywood's golden age, based on the top-selling book by the same name, Starcatcher. This time we're going to take you on a journey down television's memory lane. If you grew up in the 50s, one of the most beloved television series was Father Knows Best, which won six Emmy Awards, starred legendary actor Robert Young as Jim Anderson, a mild-mannered insurance man. Now, see if this sounds familiar. Kent, the only cigarette with a Micronite filter. Kent Regular and the new king-size Kent present the story of a man, his home, and his family. Starring Robert Young and Jane Wyatt. With Eleanor Donahue, Billy Gray, and Lauren Chapin in Father Knows Best. In addition to Father Knows Best, for which he won three Emmy Awards, Robert Young went on to win two more primetime Emmys for the 1970 series Marcus Welby, M.D., in addition to television, Robert Young was in a hundred different movies and numerous radio shows. We'll look inside the real life of Robert Young with intimate stories told by John Frederick, writer, producer, and storyteller. And we'll find out how drinking nearly derailed the career of another Hollywood legend, Jason Robards Jr. And we'll pull back the curtain on the life of the author of Starcatcher, John Frederick, who was assigned to Hollywood by the U.S. Navy, and he made the most of every opportunity. But first, let's find out more about Hollywood legend Robert Young. John, how did you meet him, and what was he like behind the scenes? Well, Robert Young. Actually, I became uh, very close to Robert Young and his family, but that was later, and my wife Gail was involved in that. When they made Vanished... Robert Young was in it. He played a senator. I saw him at the rap party. I saw him a few times. We didn't really speak. I, of course, I knew who he was. I don't know if he's still doing Welby. You know, he was one of the two top names, Dick Widmark. And he and Widmark had evidently known each other. So I, I was able to see them interacting, and they're very nice. And when they're having lunch and so forth. Funny thing about Widmark, I always thought how cool he was. He evidently had an ulcer because he could only eat bland food. So there's Bob Young. Later, this is much later now. Well, he did a, a show called The Admiral. Robert Reed was in it, too. It was supposed to be a series, but it didn't really go as a series. So he had played naval officers before. He was actually in a movie called Navy Blue and Gold. James Stewart was the star. Robert Young was in it. Lionel Barrymore was in it. And it was about a Navy football team. And these uh, naval cadets, they were at Annapolis. It was shot there. I think there was a female star named Florence Rice, whose father was a very, very famous sports writer named Grantland Rice, and she had a, a bit of a star. What about 1935, 36, I guess? And Lionel Barrymore was in it, and there were a lot of character actors that, that you would recognize. Robert said, "Yeah, well," he said, "We did a football thing where I was supposed to score a touchdown, and I'm running, and I had to do it over and over." He said, "I, I smoked in those days." And I had to run 
and run and run and run. And I was supposed to, you know, be scoring a touchdown. He said, my God, they almost killed me. And there was another thing in there. He said, well, I had to tackle Ernie Nevers. And Ernie Nevers was a famous Stanford All-American. A lot of those football players don't know how to take it easy. And so when Robert said it was like trying, trying to tackle a statue or a brick wall, that was funny. And he said, yeah, we're supposed to be the Navy football team. I weighed 135 pounds. James Stewart was built like a hat rack. He weighed about 120 pounds. And quarterback Tom Jones was a midget. So <laughs> that Navy football team could never want anything. It came to pass later that through a friend of mine, someone I'd gone to school with, he was also a therapist, but a psychologist, Bob Young was in the hospital in Thousand Oaks. He lived in Westlake Village, and he and his wife were both in the hospital together. And so it worked out through Warren, who was uh, doing some therapy with, with the Youngs. Gail became a driver for Robert Young and Betty, his wife. Now, they had met in high school. They had done a play together, Robin Hood. And I've seen pictures of the two of them. It was in high school, Lincoln High. <laughs> I remember Betty saying she was supposed to do something, call to Robin Hood from behind a rock. And somehow the rock, which of course was paper mache, somehow her dress got tangled in this, this paper mache rock. And she was supposed to come to Robin Hood and she dragged this rock on stage with her when the play was gone on. That must have been pretty funny. They were married. They were married for life. They were together 70-some years, I guess, when Betty passed away. Gail was the driver for them. Neither one of them would drove at that point. And so she got a lot of, you know, I think she got $15 an hour or something like that. Anyway, it was a wonderful opportunity for her. And, of course, I got to meet Robert Young. And I would go to his house. I began to handle his fan mail for him. And then he would tell me stories about old Hollywood, you know, how things were, what was it like at MGM and you know, that kind of thing. So it was a lot of fun. That went on for years, actually. Eventually, Betty passed away. She and Gail had, uh, I would sit in, in Robert's office at the house on Saddle Tree there in Westwood Village, and Gail and Betty would be laughing, laughing, and Robert would say, what are they laughing at? What are they laughing at? I said, I don't know. <laughs> what are they laughing at? I don't, I don't know. Betty and Gail became very close. Betty passed away. But before she did, she asked that Gail come to the hospital. We had come back from Arizona just so we could. Uh, we didn't know, of course, she was dying. We had no idea. But she she had four daughters, but there were various reasons, for one reason or another, that they couldn't really be there as a caregiver. One of them lived in Phoenix. Um, uh, the other one was in La Jolla. And, uh, just didn't work out that they were able to handle it. She asked Gail, would you act as a caregiver for Robert? And, of course, she would have done anything for Betty and said, of course. And then, lo and behold, she passed away. So Gail then took up residence in Saddletree while I continued to live out in Lake Sherwood, and I would go over from time to time. Robert Young was probably best known for his starring role in Father Knows Best and Marcus Welby, M.D., but he was much bigger than his popular television characters. Robert was, he was a star in movies. He was a star in the 1930s through, through 1940, say, 47, 48, 49. And he made 100 films. A lot of people just think of him in terms of television. But he was a very big star 
at MGM. Not the biggest. He wasn't a Gable, and he wasn't a Robert Taylor, and he wasn't a, a Jimmy Stewart. But Robert could have had a part that Jimmy took. Mr. Smith, I think Robert was considered for that part. And it might have gone that Robert became a bigger star than Jimmy Stewart, but it worked out the other way. He and Stewart had done several films together anyway. Uh, Mortal Storm, I think, thing in 1940 with Stewart, and of course, Navy Blue and Gold. He did a picture in 1940 called Florian, and it was about Vietnamese horses. In the 30s and 40s, actors didn't have the rights that they do now. They didn't have the hammer as they do now. I told Robert once that Waterworld was being made for $100 million. He wouldn't believe me. He said, it's impossible. Couldn't be. Couldn't be. I think the movie was called Florian. It was about the Viennese Lapinazers or whatever the horses are called. They were working on Saturday. And uh, the studios had a habit of working late on Saturday. And then they'd have to come back Sunday. And so they actually, they didn't get a five-day work week until probably the mid-40s or something. Anyway, they had to fight for it. By this time, it was at night. It was uh, an exterior of a corral, and these horses were all in there, dancing horses or whatever they were. They were show horses. The last scene, the director said to Robert, I want you to climb over the corral fence and then go underneath the horse, you know, right under, uh, between his legs, underneath the horse, and then and go to the front and, and then say this and this and this. And, this. and it's about 8 o'clock or 9 o'clock at night. And Robert said, no. Well, he didn't say no in those days, but he wouldn't do it. It was really the last scene in the picture, right, or the last sequence in the picture. Everything ground to a halt, and Robert was steadfast. He was not going, he, he knew enough about horses that he was not going to do that scene. So they had to get somebody else. And by this time, it's like two or three or four o'clock in the morning. They're still working. There's, you know, nothing's happened. They got a stuntman who had been in some cowboy films in the 30s. His name was Buddy Roosevelt. And he agreed to do it. So as Robert looks on and the director looks on, Buddy Roosevelt climbs over the fence, crawls over to the horse, and attempts to go underneath the horse. And while he's going underneath the horse, the horse kicked him in the chest. And that was it. And then the ambulance came and took Buddy Roosevelt to the hospital. Robert said he felt so bad, he went to the hospital two or three days later, and and, uh, Buddy Roosevelt still had hoof marks on his chest. (laughs) I shouldn't laugh, but it was funny at the time. So there was a lot of those, you know, stories about various movies. And and we had a, a birthday party for Robert, his 90th birthday, and a lot of the stars that had worked with him came. Margaret O'Brien, they had done uh, Journey for Margaret, and I think a couple others, actually. And Roddy McDowell, who, who knew him well, and, and all the cast from uh, Dorothy McGuire. Uh, Dorothy had been in Enchanted Cottage. That was one of Robert's, I guess, most favorite movie. And Dorothy McGuire had been in that, and they did a couple with Claudia, and a lot of uh, old-timers showed up that day, and that was really something to see. It was great to be able to talk to these old pros. And Robert, he had an awful lot of leading ladies who who admired him. And the reason was he didn't try to steal scenes from them. And Hedy Lamar, for one, said that Robert was her favorite actor. And she had worked with Tracy and Gable and Stewart and everybody. And that was not uncommon. Janet Ruth Warwick, uh, Ruth Pussy. 
they'd all said the same thing. They're just really, really like Robert. He was very popular with his uh, co-stars. Very, very popular. Now, later on, there was something that Vanity Fair did called the, the first Hollywood edition. And this goes back to, I think, 1995. Betty had passed away. She was there full time. I'd get over there as much as I could. One of the things that kind of funny thing has happened is that Robert, of course, had known Betty all his life. And so when she died, there were a lot of people, I think, that thought that he would not survive the loss. Well, the truth is he was depressed. He was very grief-stricken. And, and so Gail, he really liked Gail. Gail was kind of a breath of sunshine to him. And they would just kind of sit there, she in one chair and he's in another, and they'd spend the day. She'd had make, get made dinner. We, of course, we had a cook and uh, some other people around that were helping out. Robert's still morose. So Gail got dressed up in a cow suit. She had a cow everything, including udders. She had a big black and white cow suit. And she came out and started to serve Robert his dinner. And he hadn't laughed in a month. And he looked up, looked at her. <laughs> it was called a double take. He did a double or triple take, Gail looking in her cow suit. And he started to laugh and drop the food on his tray. You know what? He kind of perked up after that. He, he lived, for heaven's sake, he lived another, uh, what, five or six years, I think, and was in good spirits most of the time. He got an invitation, these very fancy invitation and lots of phone calls. You must attend this Vanity Fair Hollywood issue. It's going to be huge. It's going to be enormous. You know how they pump you. Anyway, it'll, it'll be a it'll be shot at old MGM and and limousines, and there'll be great lunch, and there'll be everybody will be there. Sinatra will be there. Everybody, Glenn Ford, all these big stars, Jimmy Stewart, everybody's going to be there, and you have to be there. And blah blah blah. Robert said, "No, he'd had enough. You know, time to get a little rest. I worked for seventy years." He said. And Gail, the idea of Gail meeting all these stars was too much for her. She badgered him. She pleaded with him. She begged him. Oh, please, we have to go. Come on, please. I mean, you just, this went on probably for a week. And finally, he just threw up his hands and said, all right, I'll go. But that's the last thing like this I'll ever do. That's it. I'll go. I'll go. I got a great picture of him. We were standing outside, and he has the biggest frown on his face you ever saw. But it turned out to be quite a deal. And if you had that, uh, the Hollywood uh, edition of Vanity Fair, there's a great, great picture. It was taken by Annie Leibovitz of all these stars together. And Gene Autry on one end and Ginger Rogers next to her and Douglas Fairbanks over here and Catherine Grayson next to her and Robert Stack and Eddie Albert and Eva Gabor and uh, Roddy McDowell and you name it. I mean, everybody, Maxine Schell, Burgess Meredith, Van Johnson, Lassie, they had everybody. I mean, I think about 38 stars. Ernie Borgnine, Widmark was there, Tony Curtis, Janet Lee, Jackie Cooper, Milton Burrow, Sid Caesar, everybody. I mean, it's just everybody showed up, but not the big, big stars. They didn't get Sinatra. They didn't get Jimmy Stewart. They didn't get Glenn Ford. They didn't get June Allison. They didn't get Mickey Rooney either. So a lot of the big stars were missing. But the fun thing about it was, it was like a meeting of old sorority or fraternity brothers and sisters. I mean, everybody just got along. It was old stories, jokes. It just, it just was wonderful. The atmosphere itself, 
fast. Gail got her picture taken with everybody. She had a cowboy hat from Gene Autry, and she had her picture taken. Well, I didn't get any pictures taken, but I walked around. I was listening, and I picked up some quotes. And a lot of those quotes ended up in Starcatcher, True Life Hollywood Fantasy, the book I've written. A lot of stories and a lot of stories from just walking around the room. It reminded me, uh, Woody Allen had a movie, Annie Hall, and he was walking across a crowded scene like this, a party of some sort or a get together. And he'd pick up little snippets of what people would say. And one guy said, he'd say, yeah, I know all the best meetings are taken. And then somebody else says, what's my sign? What's my sign? The kind of thing that Woody Allen would think, you know, would be a Hollywood party. I know Tony Curtis, when he met Robert, he got down on his knees as if he was kissing the Cardinal's ring or something. Because, you know, Tony had been in the Navy and when Robert was a star and he was in in the Bronx and when he was Bernie Schwartz. And there weren't many stars. Sylvia Sidney was there. But there weren't many stars. Jackie Cooper would have been another who were around since 1931 or, um, you know, just, just barely got sound started. And Robert never did anything like it again. But Gail had enough memories to last through the rest of her life, and uh, that was a fun, uh, a fun deal. And we got the limo treatment. I haven't taken too many limos, but we got it that day, and there was a nice lunch, and I got to see all these people so happy to see each other. And at the very end of it, they kind of didn't even want to leave, some of them, I think. And uh, the issue itself featured a two-page spread of the whole group, all 38 of them together, and of course, there are very few of those people are still with us. It was quite something. And my favorite quote, I think, was Ginger Rogers was seated next to Gene Autry, and, and Champion was right next to her. Champion three or four or five, one of Gene's many champions. Anyway, Ginger Rogers was heard to utter, there's a horse in my hair. And sure enough, Champion, I guess she had some lacquered locks or blonde hair there. Champion was nibbling away on her lacquered locks. There's a horse in my hair. Somebody do something. John, tell me a little bit about Betty Young, Robert's wife, and the role that she played in Robert's career. Betty was an interesting, interesting, she had graduated from USC in the early night in the 1930s, and women didn't go to USC. I mean, it was very rare. She had, I think, Music was her major. She was uh, operatic almost. I mean, and, and she was never, ever able to do anything with a career because she became Mrs. Robert Young. Now, there are a lot of good things about being Mrs. Robert Young, but she never really got to do what she wanted to do, I'm sure, and would have liked to have done. Betty, by the way, ran the train. She did the investment. She did the hiring and firing. She had her hand on the books when Robert passed away. There was more than $27 million in the bank because she watched over everything like an eagle. They did a lot of science of mind. They would get up, honest to God, they'd get up at like 4 o'clock in the morning and they would do readings in science of mind. John, in his later years, what kept Robert Young going? What kept him really going was his work. The one other thing that was of, of interest, I think, that was, wasn't funny, but it was very interesting. Gail called me one day and said, the press is here. They're outside the gate. I've locked them out. What do I do? What do I do? What do I do? What has happened is this. It's interesting. For one thing, when great stars start to age, Catherine Hepburn, whoever it is, Jimmy Stewart or whatever, you know, someone is getting up there. 
the tabloids will have a standard line, the sad last days of Doris Day, the sad last days of Catherine Hepburn. Uh, by the way, they had that sad last days and Hepburn lived another nine years. So there, to, <laughs> in this case, it was the Globe. The Globe had showed up. What has happened is they had very cleverly figured that one could anonymously call a tip line for elder abuse and say, we know that Robert Young is being abused by his caregiver. And so then the story comes out. Everybody, now the press then shows up. There were about 10 of them, at least three or four photographers. I was at home and I called my good friend, Bob Palmer, who was, we used to call him sponsor to the stars. Bob was a publicist and he handled Dick Van Dyke and Tony Hopkins and a lot of really, really famous people. I said, how do I play this? And he said, be nice to them. They don't know what to do with it. So I go over there. I said, hey, boys. And there were some women, too. Hey, boys, what can I do for you? You got? You need some chow? I got some chow. Would you need any more film? We got plenty of film in there. We got, what do you need? Anything? Potato chips? What would you like? Uh, you know. Oh, God, it just made him furious. But I wouldn't let him in either. One guy was trying to get Gail. He was yelling over at her. But he stuck her head out the door, yelling, $10,000 for a picture, 10000 The picture, of course, that would picture Robert Young as being a decrepit old ruin. But they were waving checkbooks, the whole thing. But you see, those anonymous, you could report, you could, they could do that anonymously and then make a story out of it. That sounds terrible, doesn't it? It is. And they're all young Brits. I was amazed. They're all right out of England and ready to set the world on fire. So anyway, we go in there, there's cops in there, there's social workers in there, and I played my Captain USNR retired thing, showed him my ID, and the cop says, any truth in this about abuse? And I said, well, we're giving him an awful lot of French vanilla ice cream. And then I had a little discussion with the social workers, and of course it all blew over, and they all left, uh, and it was over. But it was a tempest in a teapot. They want to, you know, give it some legs. Let's, let's milk this Robert Young sad last day thing one more time. But then Robert fooled him too, and he lived for another hmm, three or four years at least. John, tell me about the difference between Robert Young, the person, and the characters he played, most notably in Father Knows Best and Marcus Welby, M.D. Everybody liked Robert Young. That was his problem in a way because he knew that he wasn't that kind of person, and that it was kind of a cheat in a way. Now, the truth is, Father Knows Best, some of those family comedies, you know, the life, he didn't want to make the life of Riley. He didn't want to have a buffoon as a father. He wanted to be a father that dealt with it. And there's a lot of values, and, and Robert was really, and so did Welby. Welby was, he wanted some social bettering kind of thing, to come out of the work he did. And so Father Knows Best, sure, it was a 50s thing, you know, but there were some good lessons taught and there were some good things to be said. But again, again, he had he had kind of feelings like, oh, this isn't me, you know. And he say, he would say that in public. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not him. I'm not Jim Anderson. And Welby was the same, same thing. He enjoyed working, of course, Jane Wyatt, he were very close. Jane Wyatt was in fact like a mother figure. Some of those people had uh, either marital problems or uh, maybe a little drug problem, some mother problems, and uh, uh, she was a great counselor. Robert was, too. I think that when he was doing the show, 
it was done at Columbia, and everybody was afraid of Harry Cohen, but Harry Cohen kept his distance from Robert Young, who had a reputation. Robert was, as a matter of fact, uh, he would go over to Lawson to the uh, Round Derby on Vine Street, which is just a couple blocks from Columbia. Well, he, he told me a story. He, he liked to tell stories on himself, which I think are funny. And one of them was that he was, he, he'd gone for lunch and he going back and he had a luncheon companion. He, I, he didn't know his name and I surely don't. But they were standing outside on the sidewalk um, waiting for their cars. And the other guy's car pulls up and he says to Robert, you have three stars on, on Hollywood Boulevard. Do you know where your stars are? And Robert just said, no, no, of course not. And the guy looked at him up and down and got in his car and drove away. And Robert's left foot had been pinching him and so forth. So as his car was being brought up, he looked down at his foot and he was standing right in the center of one of those stars. <laughs> the star for radio, I guess. He had one for TV and one for movies, too. The unforgettable actor Robert Young died of respiratory failure at his Westlake Village, California home on July 21st, 1998. He is interned at Forest Lawn Memorial Park in Glendale. John, in your new book, Starcatcher, A True Life Hollywood Fantasy, you share a story about another legend of the golden age of Hollywood, actor Jason Robards Jr. Yeah, Jason Robards, we were able to get, we, we had a telethon for the National Council on Alcoholism. We got a lot of people in recovery, some athletes, political figures. Ronald Reagan did a spot for us. I think Bob Hope did. But they were not they weren't alcoholics, of course. Jason had a drinking problem, as he would be the first to tell you. Jason had a traffic accident that disfigured him somewhat. But before that, Montgomery Clift had gotten drunk at a party at Elizabeth Taylor's house and gotten in a very, very serious car accident. And his features were markedly changed and not for the better. A lot of surgery. But the next movie he made after that was called Rain Tree County. Cliff, of course, had drug problems, drinking problems, personal problems, all kinds of psychological problems, sexuality problems. I don't know what. He had a lot of problems. Rain Tree County, you, you almost didn't know who it was. Well, Jason had had some access, but Jason was never a leading man. He was one of the great actors of our time, but he was not what you call leading man material. So we were able to get him. I don't think it's pretty customary for people getting sober, although it's not something that we discuss to the public necessarily, but most people in recovery who are in show business are in Alcoholics Anonymous, the great, great majority. Some of them make it, though, without that. And there are ways to do it. And Jason, what what was about A, that kind of turned him off, but he didn't really go for it. And yet he knew and what had happened is he had a, a car wreck. He did a lot of he had marital problems, a lot of a lot of a lot of drinking problems. Period. And by the way, Jason was in the Navy too. He was on a on a ship, not at Pearl Harbor, but just outside Pearl Harbor with a with the carrier Hornet. And so he actually went through World War II. He was a, I think a first class petty officer when he he got back and became an actor. His father, Jason Senior, 
had been a very well-known actor whose career had tailed off. Again, drinking had a lot to do with that. Jason had to witness the collapse of his father's career. He was doing bit small things, and, and he wasn't one of the featured players anymore. And so that was very sad for him. But, but Jason's work was always, his major work was always on the stage. He was doing a play, probably a Eugene O'Neill play. And between the matinee performance and the evening performance, he got drunk. Now, this was a rare thing for Jason. He didn't normally, you know, he didn't normally drink on the job, like a lot of good actors who are maybe alcoholic. They're able to, you know, control their drinking, or sometimes they don't. He's doing this Eugene O'Neill play, and he, he's half in the bag, and he goes up, which is actorese for, I forgot everything. <laughs> I don't know. It happened to me in college. I'll talk about that someday, too. Uh, I'm out there looking, and there's 2,000 eyes looking at me. I mean, ah. <sighs> And I don't know my line. Uh, he went up completely. And so he looks around and nobody's helping him because he's so good. Nobody knew what to do. Normally you have a prompter, but he, he was like, oh, my God. And he looked up by, behind the curtains. There are the producers and they're staring at him with eyes like daggers. He said, oh, my God, that was the turning point for him. It affected his work, which was this, really his whole life. And Eugene O'Neill. He was the actor for Eugene O'Neill plays. I bet he did all of them over and over. He decided to do something. Well, he didn't like AA, but what he did is he had a support system. So he had a doctor, Nick Pace, who was General Motors doctor and a very famous doctor in New York. So he would be seeing him on a regular basis. He, he had a psychiatrist that he would also see on a regular basis. But he enlisted, and they were grateful volunteers, his wife, Lois, his kids, his probably Lauren Bacall, his ex-wife, his friends, they're all on board in this. And so he had a total support system around him, and he had no problem working with other actors and telling them, listen, I, I, I no longer drink. Don't ask me out. I'm not going. And so he stayed sober probably for 25 years or so with this support system that kept him on the mark. And so he'd agreed to be in a telethon. And we shot it in Century City. We had a friend of mine who was working on the working on the picture with us. He had some uh, some of his aunts, I guess, some of his relatives anyway, had a condo that we could use right near where Jason was staying at a hotel right there. So anyway, he came over. He just told his story. This is what happened. I was on stage and this and that and the other thing. I don't know. He traveled by himself. He didn't have an entourage. He had nobody with him. He came in, he shook my hand, and he shook every hand in the place. There were these nice Jewish ladies who were there, uh, grandmother, mother, daughter. Uh, they were watching, and he did his thing. He and I sat down and talked it over. What's this about? What are you going to say? Okay, this is what I'm going to do. So we laid it all out, and we shot the scenes. Probably, you know, it took an hour, hour and a half, maybe not, not a long period of time. And then he very graciously got up shook the hands of every member of the crew, off he went, all by himself. The ladies who were there, the grandmother came up to me and said, did he believe what he was saying? And I thought, huh? <laughs> he told his own story. Well, she couldn't fathom it. And I thought, oh, well, what if he was talking about drugs? And the mother went, oh, yes. 
or food? And the daughter said, oh, yeah. <laughs> they just couldn't get the alcohol part straight. But that was, uh, he was he was very good, of course. He was always very good. I don't know how many Academy Awards he won. I think how many Tonys, how many Emmys. I mean, he was just amazing, fantastic, and a very, very sweet man, very nice man. Got some nice pictures with him, and I'm very, I get, I get a little smile on my face every time I see him. Jason Robards Jr. won two Academy Awards, a Tony Award, and a Primetime Emmy Award. He died of lung cancer in Bridgeport, Connecticut, December 26, 2000. You know, John, I'm truly amazed at the up-close and personal stories that you share in your book, Star Catcher, A True-Life Hollywood Fantasy. Stories and quotes from the likes of Bob Hope, Charlton Heston, George Burns, Carol Channing, Humphrey Bogart, along with major sports stars, even former presidents. But let's pull back the curtain on you, John. Take us back to your Hollywood beginnings. Everybody wants to go to Hollywood. Everybody wants to come from Dubuque and all this stuff. They're going to go to Hollywood and become a star. They end up being waitresses or waiters or busboys or whatever it is. And I was lucky. Uh, All these events came to pass, and I got assigned to Hollywood in a very odd way. I gave up a job to get this job in Hollywood. I was a public affairs officer for the Second Fleet on the East Coast and Bingo, the next thing you know, I'm in Hollywood. It's where I always wanted to go anyway. The Navy kept, and the other services did too, public affairs, public information offices in uh, Hollywood. That's because there are so many things that are done that involve either military stories or military uh, locations, which uh, there are several very, very good Navy locations around. So here I am in Hollywood, where I always wanted to go. I just set about to learn a little bit about Hollywood. I always wanted to go there, but I I really, other than the fact that that's where movies are made, I really didn't know a lot about it. Okay, John, you're in Hollywood as a public affairs officer, a dream come true, and ready for a little OJT, on-the-job training. What do you remember about those early days in the Hollywood office? When I first got to Hollywood, the first assignment I got, was to read the reporter and variety and highlight any items for the officer in charge, Commander Paget, that were important. And so for the first month in Hollywood, I thought that the biggest star in Hollywood was Larry Harmon because he had more ink in these things than anybody else. Larry Harmon actually was Bozo the Clown. I learned a lot right there about Hollywood. And before the term fake news was overused, let's say, you could find it in the Hollywood Reporter and Variety. And then I began to meet some of the people who were associated with the Navy because, you know, all the guys from the 30s and 40s who were movie stars or served in the Second World War. So I would meet several of them, and they would hang around the office or come into the office. So I met Glenn Ford, Jackie Cooper. We saw a lot of him. Ford had been in the Marines, and Cooper had been in a Navy band. Both of them later became captains, uh, Navy captains, and John Gavin who uh, was a big star in the 50s and 60s and became ambassador to Mexico. He was a nice guy. So I got to, you know, went to their houses, got to see them, got to talk to them. And I began to learn a little bit about what Hollywood was all about. John, in those glorious days of yesteryear, Hollywood seemed to run on the engine of publicists and publicity. Publicity 
is the mother's milk of Hollywood, and there's an awful lot of publicists around, and and there's some very good ones, and there's some very uh, not so good ones, and it, you just don't know what's real and what isn't. As a matter of fact, 10 to 12 years later down the road, we got a lot of ink. We had obtained the rights to George Foreman's life story, and Jim Brown had agreed to do it. And this so far so good. This was true. But in point of fact, this was at a time when George had retired and was before he won the heavyweight title back and then made millions selling Inventa help and some cooking things. It just never happened. But I found out this. People called us up and wanted to give us all kinds of things. When you see an item in the trades and you know a picture's being made, people are going to come at you if it's a thing on sports. You're going to, people are going to offer you everything from tennis rackets to golf clubs. Here it was. Uh, I was in Hollywood. Things were good. I began to meet some people. A lot of the uh, Hollywood people really had, had been in the service. Almost everybody you could name in those days. This was 1969, remember. It was an anti-Vietnam period. This led to some, I wouldn't say, some incidents of uh, uh, bad behavior on the parts of uh, anti-war students at the time when I wore the uniform, for example. UCLA was just down the road, and and there was a lot of anti-war feeling. And so most of the pictures being made were pictures about the Second World War or even World War One. The only Vietnam movie I remember that was made at the time was John Wayne made the Green Berets. It was panned, but it made a ton of money. I would meet these people, and just for, there were actually three that showed up a lot at the office. John Gavin, who was a, a star, a big star in the 50s and 60s, and who later became a political appointee of Ronald Reagan's and was the ambassador in Mexico. Glenn Ford had been a Marine, and he got interested in the Navy again, and Got a commission and actually retired as a captain. Uh, Jackie Cooper was a second-class musician in uh, World War II, and he was doing a show called Hennessy. That was before I got there, but it was a very popular show about a Navy doctor. And so he got interested in the Navy and got a commission, and he also retired as a captain. As a matter of fact, like Lee Marvin and a lot of other people, it turns out that uh, Jackie is buried at Arlington. Anyway, I had assignments to work with various shows. Mostly it was television, because as I say, there weren't a lot of movies being made that had to do with the military or Vietnam. Uh, there was Mission Impossible, the FBI, and I would be the technical advisor, the guy in the spot to make sure all the uniforms were correct, the language was proper, and the story was something that didn't reflect badly on the Navy. Mannix, that was another show. I did uh, several of those. And I met some interesting people I met along the way. In Mannix, the associate producer of Mannix was a man named Barry Crane. It wasn't his real name. He was quite a character. He was quite a nappy dresser, we used to say, a dandy. He was the associate producer of both Mannix and Mission Impossible, and I think he directed several episodes. Well, the interesting thing about Barry Crane, he was someone I, I reported to, and he would give me my assignments, or he would let me in, and so I could watch the shooting and uh, see that all was well. Barry was kind of an interesting character. At any rate, at the time he died, he was the leading master points bridge player in the world. 
there a lot of people wrote columns, but he was the one who had, he would go from tournament to tournament when he wasn't, you know, doing pictures. The interesting thing about Barry Crane is he was murdered in uh, 1985, but it was an unsolved murder. Because of DNA, they finally got the guy who did it. And of course, Bob Crane, who I didn't know, was murdered in Vegas. They eventually caught the guy who did it. It was a partner of his or a on Mission Impossible, there was a, a head writer, and Mission Impossible was a very difficult show to write for. There were only two or three people that were any good at it, because you had to give everybody equal space. It was an, what they call an ensemble thing, like Cheers or a lot of shows since. They each had their little specialty, and you had to know about what they had to do and what they could do in that specialty. And there was a guy named Larry Heath. He was interesting. I didn't really know how interesting. I remember he was going off to ski, and I envied him for that because I was never much of a skier. Larry Weiss was going off to ski, and, and we did two or three missions, and I got to meet the cast on all those shows, so that was fun. But anyway, Larry Heath murdered his wife. Now, Hollywood is not necessarily making it sound like Hollywood is full of people who go around either getting killed or murdering somebody, which is not true. There are so many people who are just straight, honest-to-God, real-life, everyday folks who go to, go to work and, and do their thing. Those guys, Larry Heath obviously had a mental problem. He, they let him out of jail, and he wrote a book about that, about murdering his wife. But anyway, he went off the rails later and ended up killing himself. You know, Hollywood isn't all romance and good stories with happy endings. I also worked actually on a lot of movies, and one of them was Midway. We had a scene down in Long Beach where Charlton Heston was the star. The officers' club in Long Beach Naval, um, of the Naval Station, served as the Pearl Harbor. You know, what a bar is a bar, you know, so that was easy enough. And I got to watch something very interesting, and it was this, that there was a period where you would have multi-star kind of pictures. Midway was one. They're what they call cameos. Now, a cameo gives you the opportunity, if you're a star, to have your name up with the stars, even though you're not really the star of the picture. Instead of getting a million dollars, you might be getting like 250000 because you're only working for a day or two. Anyway, there was this scene with Robertson and Heston in this bar. The shot wasn't going forward. And what had happened is that Robertson wanted more lines. He wanted more words. And he wasn't going to do anything. In other words, he didn't have enough to say in the movie. And he wanted more lines. He didn't want more money. He just wanted more lines. And he wasn't going to move until a writer or somebody came down and got something so he could have more to say. Now, Heston, who was a pro, just went over to the bar, took a seat, and just sat there and waited very patiently for this hour, hour and a half until it was resolved and, and Cliff Robertson, you know, he wasn't nasty about it or anything like that, but he wouldn't perform unless he got more dialogue. And see, he was only in one or two days, and they had to get him. This was probably the last day he would have worked. They better get what he had to say or it's over. But again, he could be billed up front with the stars, with the real star, who was Heston. I also worked on another movie, which was the first four-hour movie of the week. It was called Vanished, and it was based on a book by Fletcher Nebel, I think. It was the first four-hour movie for TV. This would have been 1970, I think. 
right around there. And it starred Richard Widmark. That was the first television he had ever done. But the interesting thing about Vanish was that everybody, everybody was someone you knew. Neil Hamilton was in it. He was the commissioner in Batman. Russell Johnson, who was Gilligan's Island. Cherie North, who had been a star. Bill Shatner was in it. Jim Davis, who later went to Dallas. Everybody who appeared was somebody. That was the, the drawing power of that movie, that everybody in it had been you know, either a star or a co-star at some point in their career. And the interesting thing about it was this. I got to see the dailies, and I, I was, God, I was stunned, you know, the next day, and there it is. And each little scene seemed to be so great. And you know when they put that thing together? It just lay there. All the scenes, individual scenes were terrific, but the movie was kind of dull. I don't know what the deal was. <laughs> That's that's one of the hazards of show business. And what I learned again was I was on board the carrier. Part of the, the movie took place in the middle of the Atlantic. And I guess some important politician had vanished in the middle of, of a political campaign. He turned up on, a, on an aircraft carrier. It's super secret. I don't even remember the plot. It doesn't really matter. And as I say, it, it really was kind of dull. Here we are in San Diego, and we're supposed to be in the middle of the Atlantic. Well, I mean, if you look out from any direction, you can see San Diego, and you're supposed to be in the middle of the Atlantic. So here they shot the thing in the on the bridge where the captain and the uh, watch officers were. They shot the bridge. They had the camera set low, so you all you could see is horizon. So you could be out in the middle of the Atlantic instead of tied up to a pier at North Island Naval Air Station. That picture could not be made today because there are so many skyscrapers in San Diego that you'd have to have the camera shooting straight up, in which case it would have the overhead to the bridge and you couldn't see anything. Bill Shatner had come aboard. That was He was part of the, the shot that day, and Jim Davis was the captain. Everything went well. Except at the uh, end of the picture, uh, Jim Davis, who was dressed in his Navy khakis, and he's got the captain's you know, hat for the scrambled eggs and so forth. I was right there with everybody and on the bridge. And he said, where's the nearest bar? <laughs> it was about 5.30, 6 o'clock at night. And I said, well, there's just one outside the gate. And he said, where's the officer's club? And he went over to the officer's club because it was only about six blocks away. It was it was on a weekend, and he might have spent some of his weekends maybe uh, hitting the bottle a little more than he would have during the week, but it was because it was Saturday, he was getting thirsty. Uh, in the middle of one of the scenes that was shot at the studio at Universal, there was, again, another one of these guys, his name was Russ Conway, and he played a probably a senior cap. Anyway, he's calling the big, big admiral, the three or four-star admiral, so he picks up the red phone and he says, uh, Admiral, this is so-and-so at the OPS desk. So after the shot, the director was Buzz Kulik, who did a, a movie called Brian's Song. And he did some features, but he was terrific television director. So he would come over to me after the scene was shot. He said, was that okay? And I said, well, yes, except Russ Conway there. He made a Navy... Uh, expressions sound like a, a, a New Deal agency. And he says, what do you mean? Well, he said, the OPS desk, and the word is ops, ops for operations. If, if you'd say OPS desk, nobody in the Navy would know what the hell you were talking about. And of course, I, the uniforms and what have you, that kind of thing. I had quite a two years there. It was very, very good for me. I learned a lot. I met a lot of people. Uh, a lot of people promised me a lot of things. 
and none of them happened. I got a, a ship for one uh, movie, Silent Running. I found an aircraft carrier that had been just about ready to go to the boneyard. The Universal guys called me and said, we want, we want to do this movie. And it's not about the Navy. It's about a space freighter. And the aircraft carrier was the Valley Forge, and it was just sitting down in Long Beach, ready to go up to Mare Island to be torn up. He wanted a carrier that was on operating in the fleet. Well, we're not going to take time out and give them an aircraft carrier that's supposed to be launching aircraft and, and working on, you know, whatever particular situation is going on. That's ridiculous. That's not ever going to happen. But something that's just been sitting there, and, you know, it's not going anywhere except to be decommissioned. And so anyway... I got them that carrier, and it cost them nothing. It cost them maybe 20000 a week for four months, five months, something like that. And he said, listen, after you get out, I'll take care of you. I won't mention his name. He's dead anyway. There was that and some other things I did that were um, you know, in the nature of being quite helpful. I didn't take anything for them, but I had some promises. And like Hollywood promises and promises in a lot of places, they all fell apart. I found myself then after a 10-year career on active duty, I found myself with three children, a new home, and no money, <laughs> which is <laughs> not a great place to start a, a career. And I was ready to, you know, I had actually talked to someone at the Black Tower at Universal about getting a job and citing what I'd done, you know, for Universal, and that didn't work out either. So what was the turning point then? In your career? I got a phone call. I had been about six or eight weeks without work, and I got a phone call. I was living in Simi Valley, which is above LA, and it was a wonderful, wonderful Western location for movies that were made in the 30s and 40s. They shot a lot of odors, they were called out there. And this guy called and said, This is Lieutenant Commander. I'm at, uh, down in Long Beach. He says, Did you work at the Navy Hollywood office? I said, Yes, I did. And he said, do you know anything about movies? Well, desperation can take you to some real interesting places. And I said, I know everything about making movies, which was something the other side of an exaggeration. One would say a lie. He said, you can have 120 days of active duty if you will make this movie for us. So I said, well, what, what's it about? And he said, well, you can come down to Long Beach, I'll tell you. But basically, I'm the XO of the Destroyer Squadron. They had a skeleton crew of regular Navy types. And also then when they would go to operate, say when the balloon goes up, as we say, or used to say, when something happens as a crisis and you have to mobilize this squadron, well, then the reservists who've been going aboard it and are familiar with their jobs too – but they only go on weekends or on, you know, two weeks in the summer. Well, it turns out I couldn't make the movie because they'd already made it in the sense that all the film had been shot. And what had happened is um, there was a chief photographer. They had shot 30,000 feet, which is about 12 hours, I think, something like that. And they couldn't shoot anymore. They were out of money. You know, they, they were making this thing on a shoestring. The chief who had talked them into this, the four ships then went to Hawaii. They had operations, perhaps anti-submarine operations with ships from Pearl Harbor. They get some really good training in, and then they get to go to Pearl and have a few days in port, and then they come back to Long Beach. The chief 
Well, let's just say he had a drinking problem, something I can identify with, although I wasn't drinking at the time, and ever after, for that matter. He had, in face with, with the problem of now putting that 30,000 feet into a 30-minute movie, had been just too much for him. So he disappeared. He went off on a bender somewhere, and they couldn't find him. I was supposed to come and rescue everything. Was I going to take it? You bet. I, I was down on Long Beach the next day, and I met Captain Will Hoyt, who was the squadron commander, and this lieutenant commander who would be my boss, and Gilmore showed up finally because he knew that the cavalry was coming. I was riding to the rescue. So Chief Gilmore and I huddled after we I got briefed by the captain in the XO. And so I said to Gilmore, what the hell you got here? He said, well, we shot when the ships were uh, you know, underway, and then we shot some firing exercises, and we did this, and we did that, and we shot this, and we got this, all this film. And I said, well, you know how long it'll take me to run that stuff through a movieola? It'll take me 120 days. <laughs> Let's see what you got. And he said, okay. And so we had a projector and we had, a, we had an office. Uh, I said, let's take a look at what you filmed. I want to let's project it. So we had a 16 millimeter camera. So we project something. He's very excited to show me what he's done. Okay. Fire it up. So he put a reel on there and started it. And it against the wall there, the bulkhead, is the image, the image of nothing. And then there's somebody comes in and he's got a white, he's like a white t-shirt and and white trousers and he's got an apron on and a, a chef's hat. Obviously a cook. Well, I think this is kind of a slow way. We can't really start the movie this way, I guess, but okay, let's see it. There's the, uh, the image and the chef is looking at the camera and he picks up a cleaver and starts chopping a head of lettuce. Chop, 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 chop. And this went on, it seemed like about an hour, but probably only about a minute and a half, maybe two minutes, chopping, chopping, chopping. And I don't know how many feet that is, but it's a lot. And I don't know how much time it actually was, but it was endless. So I looked at Gilmore and I said, Chief, what, what is this? And I could see him. I could see his eyes. He was riveted to seeing of this thing he had shot. And that was the first lesson that I learned on this shoot, on this movie, is don't fall in love with your own crap. Because I said to him, what's next? And he said, smiling, he said, he does tomatoes next. And I said, not in my movie, he doesn't. This took 120 days to rescue a film out of this where we told the story of what each division did, what the ships did individually, and what the ships did in unison. But most of the footage, it turns out, was shot in the bars of Honolulu. I had enough film to make an hour and a half documentary on the bars of Honolulu. This, however, was not what the movie was about. So we had a definite problem here. I was able to throw out the whole cans of film. I would tell a story showing a lot of seagoing shots and then personnel working on various things, this, that, and the other thing. And I developed a story whereby, you know, here we are, we, are, we have these ships that are manned by regular Navy people, but then the reserves come in so the job can be done and everybody is teamwork and we all go together and here we go and so forth and so forth. And, and there was enough 
firing of five inch guns that every three minutes I'd have the guns firing. So that, you know, my God, there's something breaking up all this. What we did is we put it together and we had a half hour and it was pretty well, you know, for what it was, it was pretty well written. I thought it was what it was. It was what I could do. I couldn't do anything else. And through my contact, and through the fact that I'd worked in the Hollywood office and the fact that Glenn Ford wasn't making a movie at that particular time, he agreed to do the narration, which all of a sudden, hey, we came from a, you know, a, a B movie to we got Glenn Ford in this thing. And so I was able to go down and work with him in Hollywood and he did the narration and the picture's title, my title, was Operation Readiness. The CO thought it was wonderful. The XO thought it was wonderful. We all had a party and they all got drunk and everybody thought it was great. It was the beginning. It was what it was for me. It was high school, college, graduate school. And I learned everything about how to make a movie. But I never got to shoot a scene. I never got to add anything to it. I could have really made it twice as good, but I just didn't have the opportunity. You know, we had to do with what, what we had. And my father, who was a, a product of the Depression, a man who thought me wanting to be a writer and work in Hollywood was the silliest thing. He wanted me to stay in the Navy. So he did come down and he took a look at the picture, the finished picture, Glenn Ford and everything. And the thing had just gone on local TV down in Long Beach and was well-received. So I, I got a copy of it. I show it to Dad at home. And he said, hmm, not very good, is it? <laughs> and I said, Dad, it isn't. But the people I made it for think it's gone with the wind. And who am I to say nay? That one film kind of opened the door. And things began to happen for me after that. And when the door opened, John, you certainly walked right in. Now, in your book, Starcatcher, you relate many adventures with a who's who of Hollywood back in its heyday, including William Shatner and Burt Lancaster, Charlton Heston, Barbara Eden, Dick Van Dyke, and Carol Burnett, plus Ernest Borgnine and many other Hollywood heroes and many sports celebrities. We'll get to those stories in future editions of the podcast. That wraps up this edition of Star Catcher, the podcast, true stories from Hollywood's golden age, as told by the man who was there when they said it, John Frederick, a distinguished Hollywood producer who has some 50 films and documentaries to his credit and is the author of the top-selling book by the same name, Star Catcher, a true-life Hollywood fantasy. That is available at Amazon.com and wherever popular books are sold. We certainly hope you've enjoyed this podcast, and if you did, there's something that you can do for us. Number one, subscribe or follow our podcast. Number two, leave a review. And number three, by all means, share this with your friends. In the next edition of Starcatcher, the podcast, author John Frederick will reminisce about his encounters with Anthony Hopkins, Jonathan Winters, and Carol Burnett. Until next time, I'm Neil Scott. Hooray for Hollywood. Hollywood.